Dear Jesus, thank you for saying today this scripture has been fulfilled in our hearing. And help us to see the treasure that is found in that statement. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I have a friend who is a priest in New England, and in the sacristy, which is where you keep all the communion accoutrements and all of these lovely vestments that we don with, with such credulity, um, there, there was hanging in that sacristy a hideous painting of the Madonna with child. It was really horrible. It was very, it was, but it was, it was sort of brown and bumpy and you couldn't really make out the figures. And so the head sacristan, that is the lady who, the blue haired lady who oversees everything that happens at the communion table, she thought it would be a really good idea without asking permission to remove it and hide it in the attic of the rectory. And the attic of the rectory was frequently um, invaded by young children of the priest. And they used the painting to wedge up a dartboard. And they were, you know, chucking darts at the, you know, okay. So, um, but eventually the priest found out about it and looked at the painting and said, you know, we should get this looked at because of the Antiques Roadshow exists. This thing could be worth a lot of money, even though it's hideous. So, uh, so they took it to somebody who had some expertise. And that person said, I don't, I can't really tell much from this painting, but I have a friend who works at Harvard and, uh, and uh, in the fine arts division and can really give you a good estimate. And so um, they took it to this gentleman and he reviewed it thoroughly and discovered that not only was this painting worth something, it was the missing Del Sarto piece from the 16th century. <laughs> Made its way into this hideous um, attic, you know, and they discovered it and sold it for $1.2 million. I know. I know. Bring it on, right? <laughs> Would that we were all so lucky. But from that time on, the church didn't have to worry about money. You know, one less thing. That's always good. But, um, but I want to use that as an illustration. Uh, it will help me speak about this unique Christian insight tonight. You won't hear this anywhere else. Um, the Christianity has something to say that is unique. Um, and, uh, and it's the, the idea that within our understanding of God, the majestic often hides in the ordinary. The majestic often hides in the ordinary. This often creates great welcome and great scandal. But I'll get to that. Uh, I want to talk about the majesty and ordinary nature of Jesus of Nazareth as it relates to this passage from Luke chapter 4. But to begin with the majesty, um, Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads a pregnant passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year the Lord's favor. Now, Jews often understood this passage to be more than Isaiah speaking about himself or his own individual calling. Because Isaiah, even though he was a very fine and consecrated man, did not see all of the prophetic fulfillment in this passage. 
And so many people from early on saw that the message here was more than about an individual prophet and his individual ministry, but pointed toward a future and definitive intervention that would change the world forever. Um, This anointed one who would come, you know, the word anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach. It's where we get the name Messiah, the title Messiah. And anointed ones in um, in in the, the Hebrew religious tradition were in fact literally anointed with oil. They would be smeared with oil as a sign of being set apart, about, uh, of being chosen by God for a unique task, mostly prophets and kings, uh, famous people. And... Um, and this uh, term that was frequently used of David and others um, had a, a future element. People began to believe that there would come an anointed one who would take all of the good characteristics of the kings. You know, they weren't all very good, but he would represent the best of them and incorporate those virtues into a ministry that would bring recompense and renewal to the world. That's the idea. And... Um, and this last great king that Isaiah talks about in this passage says that he'll be anointed with the Spirit. It's not just about an oil anointing, but he'll, he'll be the bearer of the Spirit of God, the one who hovers over the waters in Genesis and causes life to, to um, be produced and to thrive. That same heavy spirit will rest upon this future anointed one. And this anointed one, according to Isaiah's prophecy that we read tonight, will have a holistic mission. Very often we think that spirituality is about the resolution of internal angst. We have, we have like an existential inner crisis. There is something relieving about the gospel to people who are in existential crises, but it's more than that. It's more than that. The, the message is more fully orbed than that. I always joke with the philosophy majors in college, you know. They go through this funk after their sophomore year because they read Nietzsche and they read all these eight and they read Christopher Hitchens and he writes really well and like, wow, I'm starting to doubt everything I once believed in. And then two years later they come back and it's fine and everything. But, um, but the gospel is for more than that. The quelling of inner tumult. Uh, this is what the text says will be the, the, the goal and the project of this new missionary uh, Messiah who will come. He'll help poor people, people that really panic about how they're going to um, stay financially afloat, how they're going to feed themselves and their children. He's going to come for people who don't open their MasterCard bills because they're just so afraid of what the total is. And he's going to come for captives, that is, people trapped by external forces, people in juvenile detention centers and people in prison. And he's going to come for blind people, that is, people with health problems and and people that have chronic pain. And some of you do. You have chronic pain, and you're on a lot of medication, and it kind of works. And then he's going to come for oppressed people, people that are bullied, people that are harassed, people whose children are threatened, people who right now in Syria are terrified they're going to lose their lives. It's those people. His mission is to bring relief. He's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he's going to bring upheaval to the world as it is now and bring great recovery. Um, And so this was the old idea, a holistic vision of salvation, that everything was going to get well again, that everything bad was going to come untrue. And Jesus, in his own personal development, began to see 
that this idea prophesied by the uh, by this great man, that that idea was coming true in him. And he had an external confirmation of this because you may remember that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. You need, that had never happened to anybody before. The Holy Spirit comes down and confirms to Jesus and those who are around saying, this is or you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Right then and there. And so Jesus adopts this ancient mantle from Isaiah and says that he will be the one to fulfill this grand vision. And so what does Jesus do? He finds the parshat, the portion in the scroll. Whether it was a portion to be read that Sunday, it's very likely that they had a lectionary with selected readings for given Sundays or Saturdays, uh, just as we do. Whether it was that or whether he deliberately chose to read that portion of Scripture, he was handed the scroll and reads it. And then he gives an unexpected interpretation one that was probably never uttered in the history of Judaism. He says, today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a bold declaration that you don't have to wait anymore. All of you who have had such rigorous dilemmas, all of you who have been enslaved and hurting, all of you who have cried last night, all of you who really worry most of the time how your life is ever going to come together, it's all done now, and everything is going to be made well. Today, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. The majestic king is here. You don't have to wait anymore. And the response, of course, is that they marvel at this. They're caught up in the moment. Nobody's ever said that before. And it was a short sermon, so that was nice. Uh, Sadly, though, the marveling was very short-lived. We didn't read the whole text tonight. I'll read it in a bit. But we hear what I interpret as an objection to Jesus' person. Somebody stops their marveling and says, or asks, is not this Joseph's son? Now, I think it was received by Jesus negatively because he immediately launches into a very heavy retort. This is what Jesus says when that question was asked. Doubtless, you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, and his miracles likely, do here in your hometown as well. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. In other words, a pagan, Gentile. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. In other words, he receives this statement, it seems, negatively and pushes back saying, oh, so you want me to prove I'm something because you think I'm just Joseph's son. So you want me to do a trick for you, is that it? Physician, heal yourself. Do here what you've done elsewhere and prove that you're not just the son of Joseph. Yet another prophet in a long line of prophets. Um, and, and so the question is not this Joseph's son may entail ideas of, you're a man that we know I and mean, we grew up with you. We grew up with you. We were taught by the same rabbi. We know your parents. You worked on our house. 
And now you're saying that this ancient prophecy is coming true in you? And so Jesus loses his cool. And then they lose their cool. And they seek to push him off a cliff and kill him. So worship becomes attempted murder in just a matter of moments. Uh, and so <clears throat> they seem to object to Jesus' person. I think it's more speculative, but I think a real possible, uh, I think it's really possible that they also objected to his timing because Jesus said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, like right now. And maybe they looked around and said, really? Because the world still looks the same after your sermon is over. And the Romans are still there. And our kids are still sick. And we're still broke. And we still can't climb our way out of this situation. And so what do you mean? And what kind of, and what is that about? This bold claim when everything outside this door is still as miserable as it ever was. You know, uh, uh, many of, many Jews in the first century believed that there would be a great rift between the current evil age and the age to come, that when Messiah came, the skies would part and everything would change in an instant. There would be total liberation. And if you read Isaiah 61, as we did tonight, you understand why they thought that way. It says in this passage that this Messiah will do all these things and will restore the whole nation. Turn it back into a Garden of Eden, if you keep reading. He's going to take all the desolation and get rid of it. And that has not fully happened in the ministry of Jesus. We get hints and whispers and examples of it. Most people's lives are the same. And so uh, we, we, um, we, we understand, I think, what that's like. This notion of, of, of waiting and not being sure that we're being heard or things are being answered in a timely way. This came home to me when I was 19 or 20. I had a very good friend who was in a, a terrible accident. He was burned very, very badly, most of his body. And we and it was at a party, and and one of the we saw him get into an ambulance. He was walking, but we were all very worried for him, not sure how this thing would end. Um, his name was Greg, and he was the salutatorian at our high school. I always made fun of him because salutatorian is like number two. I said you're the first loser, and he said, "Yeah, but in a school of 500, you're down the list 300." So I wouldn't be bragging. He, <laughs> he was right. Um, but he, he, was, um, he was badly burned, and, and we decided at our high school, at this public school, that we should have a vigil for him. So we all met and had our candles, and we were praying. And one of the people who showed up was this guy named Ross, who was even at 17 an avowed atheist, thought that you know, Christians were crazy, sort of naive. And so we were praying, but Ross was there, and he was crying and holding hands with everybody. And it was a... It was a Beautiful moment of connection and concern and fierce tears. And two days later, my friend dies. And I was so hurt and so upset. I was very angry. And I remember having to pull over in my car because I couldn't drive right. I was just grieving so seriously. And I pulled into this Perkins parking lot in, in Cranberry Township. And I just lost it. And I, I said, you know, I uttered a very kind of mean prayer. And I said, would it, terrible language, would it kill you? I mean, to just do a miracle once. I mean, to act like you used to. And because this would have, you know, this would have helped more than Greg. This could have brought people to faith, you know. 
I didn't realize at the time that Jesus did miracles and not everybody believed even though they saw them, but, but I was crying out from a place of great, great pain and the loss of a good friend. And I wonder if that's been your story in some way where you thought, you know, do I have to wait forever? I mean, is there no recompense here and now? And that's maybe what they were thinking, that they objected to Jesus' timing. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. But Jesus knew a secret from God that nobody else knew. And that secret was a different understanding of how the kingdom of God comes to us. It, it, it comes, Jesus tells us, not with shock and awe. It comes as a mustard seed. It comes as wheat sown among tares. It comes as a seed that falls to the ground and then dies. It comes in a little synagogue in Nazareth. And it comes at a cliff where Jesus is almost killed. And it comes at another cliffside on another sunny day where Jesus uh, runs out of blood and breath. That's how the kingdom of God comes. It, it, it comes, the majesty comes through the ordinary. But the, the synagogue didn't understand that, and they came to the conclusion that Isaiah's vision was true, but Jesus was not the vessel. Not the vessel. And so they moved to have him killed. Now, I want to say something about the heart of the Christian idea as it relates to the kingdom of God entering, the majesty entering through the ordinary. Um, I want to say something about um, how that relates to God's own anointed one, how it relates to that anointed one's kingdom, and how it relates to the anointed one's subjects. And then give you a project. The anointed one we see in him the majesty hidden in the ordinary. You know, we have, as Christians, an outlandish confession of faith. I mean, have you, have you sat and thought about how audacious the creed really is? This is what we believe, that God is made most present to us in a man who lived 2,000 years ago, who had a ministry that was only three years long, a man who was hated by a lot of people, and a man whose only physical anointing with oil came five days before his death, where he said this woman was anointing him for his burial, the death of a king, not the beginning of his ministry. And then he ends up on a cross and dies. He lost. Before he wins again, of course, at the resurrection. But we huddle around somebody who life destroyed. But we see in this the glory of God. That's what God was doing in the world. There is, there is the place where God is reconciling us to himself. Nowhere else in the world. Right there. And we stand with the son of Joseph as he hangs and dies. And so we think and we profess week after week that this man is the king of kings and the lord of lords to whom we owe all allegiance and fealty. That's the magnificent hiding in the ordinary related to the anointed one. But it's true of the anointed one's kingdom that the kingdom of God begins humbly in small ways. Um, this is different than much Islamic theology where, the, where God and his power, Allah's power comes through might and, uh, and at times through the caliphate. 
the creation of a structured Islamic society with forced conversions, and that God's blessing is seen through expansion of uh, Islamic power. That's how you know God is with you. You're winning. Christianity is a different idea entirely. Um, This was brought home to me um, by somebody's disenfranchisement with religious celebrity. By the way, because the kingdom of God comes as a mustard seed and looks humble, and it eventually grows up and becomes the largest tree in the, in the, in the field. But um, because it enters in humbly, we should always be suspicious of religious celebrity and our attraction to it, because it can get kind of weird, uh, whether it's an author or uh, um, some sort of TV personality. Um, but this came home to Mike Iaconelli, who he, he died several years ago, but he was a um, sort of a youth ministry guru. And he, in a particularly dark time spiritually, decided it would be a good idea to go visit um, Henry Nouwen in the Laarche community. Henry Nouwen was a famous Catholic priest who left his um, teaching position at Harvard, which requires a miracle of some sort, and spent all his time with adults who had mental handicaps in this little community. And so Mike Iaconelli says, I need to, be, I need to have some help. So I'm going to go to this man who's a guru of peace and tranquility. Because he wrote books like The Wounded Healer. And every time you read Henry Nouwen, you just feel better. Like somebody understands me. This is nice. So Mike goes, uh, goes to visit him. And he said, this could have been just me and it could have been the wrong time, but he was the crankiest priest I've ever met in my life. And he didn't like me. And he didn't really want to talk to me. And he said, and then we gathered for communion. And he was there offering a half-hearted Eucharist, you know, and that all the adults with mental handicaps were screaming and shouting, and you could barely hear cranky Henry Nouwen do the Mass. And he said, this is not like paradise. And he was ruminating on this, but all of a sudden the Spirit touched his heart, and he realized, oh no, this is the kingdom of God. This is how it always enters. It comes through the ordinary. I mean, how blessed is weakness. It's the water in which Christ comes to us. And he was meeting Mike Iaconelli in that room of screaming people and a cranky priest. But that's often how the kingdom comes, you know. Uh, The ordinary clothing, the majestic. Lastly, um, this text, I think, has something to say to the anointed one's subjects. That's us. You know, Paul thought that Jesus Christ was a, a role model He thought that Jesus Christ showed him um, what it meant to be a really important person, but clothed in frailty. Paul called himself, you may know, in his ministerial companions, they were clay pots, jars of clay. They weren't impressive to look at, but they carried with them a treasure. They were like the painting of the Madonna and child, bumpy and dark and barely visible. But through that came great worth. And that's true of you. And it's true of all of us because you have eternity residing in you and you have the Spirit of God resting upon you. And so um, what is the the, um, truth about the kingdom of God that the work has begun and is beginning in you right now? Willie Stark uh, famously uh, said, do you know why God makes saints out of sinners? Because he ain't got nobody else to make them out of. (laughs) A limited pool. But that's who we are. Um, And the task in this hour, friends, the task in this hour 
is to have in our hearts a prayer that Jesus taught us about the nature of his kingdom and what we as disciples are to pray. He taught us something. He, he didn't say to settle for how things are right now. And life is terrible, and, and you know, you've got a lot of terrible things in you, so just suck it up and sort of muddle through. He gave us something rather revolutionary to say. He said that we could ask God um, to bring the kingdom in a more robust and full way. He said, thy kingdom come. That's what he taught us to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as things are in heaven, in total tranquility with God, we pray for that now. And so when you're in a situation that's over your head, when you're experiencing uh, th- those places of intended deliverance that Isaiah speaks about, you can pray into that and ask your Heavenly Father to bring the kingdom in that place at that time. It may appear in various forms that are unpredictable, but I remember something that Archbishop William Temple once said about prayer. He was this brilliant theologian, but this is his conclusion about all prayer, for what it's worth. This is what Temple says, Archbishop of Canterbury. Finally, I don't understand how prayer works at all. (laughs) It's so scholarly, I love it. He says, all I know is that when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. That's beautiful, though, right? I mean, it's pithy, but it's beautiful. So I, I, I encourage us to pray, to pray for that kingdom to show it up when, whenever a marriage is troubled, whenever addiction strikes and won't leave, uh, whenever you're at your lowest point, that you pray the kingdom of God comes and just see what God does. Because, and no matter what happens, friends, even if that prayer isn't answered the way you'd like or in the timing that you'd like, a delay is not a denial, not with God. This promise is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, itself. And so, let's not do what Jesus' compatriots did. Let's not abandon him because we think he asked too much, because we think he's not a winner. Let's instead... Uh, lift high in our hearts the son of Joseph and align ourselves with him. And we'll find the recompense that we need. And we'll also discover, to quote the author of Hebrews, in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay.